name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have um, blessed in order for us to hear your word and receive all of your gifts. We ask that you would keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so uh, we had talked about two weeks, no, three weeks ago now, Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Again, that's our context, and that's why we're doing all the stuff we've been doing since then. Matthew, Ethan's not on the right page. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Somebody like to read that just to reframe it for us? Thank you very much. So really, especially verses, verse 21, we would say is the, I mean, it's the center of the Christian faith. It's what it means to have a Savior. To be a Christian is to be, uh, have been joined to Christ, right? That you're in Christ Jesus. But remember, Christ is actually not just a na- it's not really a name, but it's a title, right? Which, Christos, which means, anybody know, technically? Yeah. The anointed one. Anointed one, yeah. Anointed for what? And that's actually the big point, isn't it? Nor- normally it's for the king to be king, or you can be anointed to be priest, right? So, uh, not usually anointed to be a prophet, though. That's what the whole, remember Elijah and Elisha? You get the cloak, the prophet's cloak. I don't know. I don't have one. That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? Actually, in the, maybe you don't know this. There's a liturgical vestment called a cope. Sounds like cape, right? And it looks like a cape. It has a little clasp. And um, I don't actually know what the technic. Who's supposed to wear that? I think it's if you had three pastors serving, you might have one. Well, no, that wouldn't even be right. Maybe if you had four. Anyway, don't. Let's not worry about that. <laughs> Side note. Um, but anyway, cope. Go backward a step. What was right before that? Anointed one, thank you. Yes, anointed with oil. Um, yes, it's true. The priests were anointed with oil, um, but so were kings. So were kings. So the question really is, how is Jesus our priest and king? By in what manner does he exercise his priestly duty? Which is, what do the priests give? What are the purpose of the priest? The priesthood. Yeah, sacrifices, but for what purpose? Forgiveness of sins, that's right. So it's not their sacrifice to God. It's really about the sacrifice being the means by which God gives his peace, his forgiveness of sins. All right, so that's the the priest forgives sins of the people, and he does it through all these sacrifices, right, which God appointed. Um, How about the king? What is the king's job normally? 
to King, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, I think we talked about this in the past, but in, in Greek, the word for king and the ru- word for ruler, or ruling, or kinging, it's the same word. It's just a noun and a verb. It sounds the same. It's the same in Latin, in Latin right? What is the king? The rex? And how does the king king? Welcome, Lance. Welcome. Come on in. Wow. Find a seat. We'll make a seat. There's a table back there. You have to go to the back of the room. Um, how does the king, oh, I was saying in Latin, the king is called rex and then he regnas, which is the, the verb form of the noun. Uh, but in English, we don't have that. So kings don't king, they rule or they something like that, right? Um, so how, the question in there again is how does Jesus rule? How is he your king? Is he his king, your king through what might and power and destroying your enemies? Yes, <laughs> but maybe not quite like we think, right? So both of those things have, um, have a place here in this, in this uh, what we call passion prediction, verse 21 especially. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, and I would say must as priest and king, go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised, be raised the third day. That's how he's your priest, and that's how he's your king. Huh. And so you know, like during Holy Week, it's a big deal. He gets palm branches, and he gets the donkey, just like David, and, he, and Solomon too. He comes in, and he, because he, he's going to be king, right? And then what do they say by the end of the week? We have no king but Caesar. Yeah. Um, same with, with being a priest. He comes in, he shows himself in the temple, and then, but what is, does he come bringing forgiveness of sins in the temple? No, forgiveness of sins is purchased and won for you outside even the city walls uh, on a trash hump, de- a dump, really. Golgotha, it's right, it's where they, Gehenna, that val- is the valley where they dumped all the garbage and excrement and everything. And that's right next to Calvary. Funny that. Um, so people didn't generally go out there. No, he goes into the, the uh, temple and what does he do? Yeah, he yells at him. Uh, whip of cords, starts beating on him, actually. And uh, because they, they're not giving out forgiveness of sins in the temple, they are, they've made it a den of robbers by buying and selling. And uh, that's a whole other subject, but it, they've, they've turned the right observation of the sacrificial system away from being God's means of delivering forgiveness of sins to the people. And they've made it into this transactional thing that you do with God, that you offer your sacrifices to God, and then somehow that's, that's going to either make God happy with you or pleased with you. So that's kind of a transactional understanding of what, who God is and how he is your king or priest. Okay. Following so far? So this is really important. This text, I said that there's three passion predictions, which you see on the other side of the sheet, first page. But on the back side, then, we started to talk about how um, Luther in, in 1520, what, no, 1518, so 500 years ago, was asked by, did I tell you who? It's the Archbishop of Mainz. What was his name? Albrecht, I think? Albrecht of Mainz. Neat name, right? Nice German name. Uh, Albrecht uh, had read Luther's 95 theses. He had sent them on to Rome. Um, he said, we've got a problem. Rome, we need to, we need to respond to this Luther guy. 
these 95 theses, I mean, they're being printed and shared all over the Western world. <clears throat> and this is causing problems. So they convened a disputation between, oh, some guy I'd have to look up, probably in my notes here somewhere. Um, some Augustinian to represent Rome. And then they sent Luther, of course, to represent his position. So they're both Augustinians. They're at an Augustinian mon monastery. Oh, here he is. Gabriel della Volta. Okay, nice name. Italian name. Uh, they're going to meet in Heidelberg and talk through Luther's 95 Theses. That was the plan. Uh, that's not what Luther did. Because 95 Theses were now, as we talked about last week, six months ago. <laughs> and it seems like this... Everything is changing very rapidly for Luther. The scriptures are being revealed to him um, very dramatically in a very short period of time. I, I likened it to, to the, uh, the Beatles. Because over 10, I mean, all their albums span just 10 years, right? Some of you know that. You might have even been alive then. Uh-huh. Um, and you know that the, there's an amazing difference between Meet the Beatles and the last album, which is really Abbey Road, Not Let It Be as far as when it was recorded, not when it was released. There's a huge difference in, in the music and even what the, who those people were. <laughs> um, there was a lot going on in the world at the time, too, and that was the same for Luther as well. So from 1517 to, say, the small catechism in what year? 1523. When was the small catechism? 1529. 29, yeah, it's late 20s. Uh, huge, huge change in Luther's way of expressing um, what the scriptures teach. And that's as what's happening is he's, he's trying to reconcile what the Bible says, what he's reading in the actual text of the scriptures versus what he's learned in the medieval monastic uh, way of things, which was to read people like uh, Gabriel Beale and Lombard and his, his sentences. So they were reading, what they were doing is reading philosophy about the Bible, written about the Bible, um, but they weren't reading the Bible itself. So I think last week, this is a lot of recap, but hopefully it's helpful for you. Uh, last week we talked about I mean, Luther being a part of the, uh, the humanist renaissance. The, and, and part of the renaissance was to go back to the sources, the original sources. So in the case of the Bible, read the Greek, read the Hebrew, uh, read the Latin in terms of what you read in the Greek and the Hebrew. <laughs> Not since the Latin's derivative. Um, but also read, read the classics. Read Cicero, read um, Plato, Aristotle. Who am I forgetting? Read, oh, who's my favorite? Marcus Aurelius. I, I, we, I'm looking at Jody. I think that was months and months ago, wasn't it? We had a conversation about, about the, uh, who's Marcus a part of that whole Aurelius? Stoics. The Stoics, yeah. I think we talked about Stoics. I haven't read as much as... Jody has. Welcome again. Um, and he's not, it's, it's not a rejection of those things. It's actually, let's go back, because part of humanism is to say that man actually, um, throughout history, has uncovered aspects of reality, of, of humanity, of the relationship of man to nature, even of the design of nature. Some of the classics... They, they, I mean, the, they spoke of deity. They spoke even of, like, creating deities. Aristotle does. So um, so let's get back to those sources and not throw off all of that wisdom. 
And part of that actually is just going back and reading the Bible <laughs> and not reading all of the derivative documents um, that were part of the monastic, or especially just the broad medieval tradition. Following so far? So this is what Luther's doing. He's saying, here's what I've been taught. Here's what the Bible says. Now, do they, do they work together? Or are they actually incompatible? So last week, uh, well, you know, in the back of your sheet, sorry about that, where it says theology of the cross. We, these are theses 16 through 18. Last week I read you 1 through 15, the ones that lead up to it. But you remember at the beginning, this was his introduction. He says, um, we're going to, okay, I'll just read it again. When we despair completely of ourselves, we follow the Spirit's counsel. Do not lean on your own understanding, Proverbs 3. And so we humbly uh, offer as introduction these theological paradoxes to all people who want to be here. We do this so that we might thereby, here's the point, be clear whether they have been drawn rightly or wrongly from St. Paul, the choicest vessel and instrument of Christ. And then it will be clear whether they have been drawn rightly or wrongly from St. Augustine, Paul's most faithful interpreter. Right? So I'm going to present these ideas to you for discussion. And the goal here is to say, one, is this what St. Paul teaches in particular? New Test- is this what the New Testament teaches? And only then can we say, is it what St. Augustine teaches? As an Augustinian monk, this is what's really important. Following so far? All right. I know this sounds kind of academic, but there's going to be real, I think, benefit for you. So let's go to your sheet, and we won't recap 1 through 15. We'll be here till tomorrow, and we won't get anywhere today. At the Heidelberg Disputation in April 25th, 1518, Luther presented the following points, numbers 16 through 18. They introduce a biblical perspective on righteousness and suffering. All right. Somebody like to read the first one? The person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. Uh, So, what is grace, by the way? Anybody get like a kind of a cliff note definition? God's grace. Unmerited favor. That's I think that's what I learned, catechism, right? God's unmerited, you know, undeserved favor towards sinners, towards us. Uh, that's not the medieval <laughs> definition. That's not the definition that Luther grew up with. The definition he grows up with is grace is a material or substance that is infused into you. Gratia infusia or something in Latin, right? It's infused into you and it becomes like the Holy Spirit spark that enlivens you with faith and um, with good works. Everything that God wants to work in you, he does by infusing the substance called grace into you. Okay? So when we say grace to you, it's not not God, God be favorable to you, it's God give you this thing that you need in order to be uh, who he wants you to be. Following? Aren't you already who he wants you to be? Do you hear Elsie? She asks, aren't you already who he wants you to be? What's the answer? Anybody? Yes or no. Yeah, we talked about this. 
Thank you. You're his child, but you're also his sinful child. Yeah, so, so you are God's child by virtue of your baptism, which is a holy declaration with water and word to say, you are my child, right? And that's true if you are obedient. <laughs> it's, it's true as, it's always true, even when you don't believe it. Ooh. Now that's a hard one. Let's not get too deep in the weeds here. All right, so, but that's true. But then we said you were a sinful child, right? So now we're talking about disobedience, but we're also talking about sinful nature, right? That, that we are of the flesh, as Paul says. So that we are, by nature, completely opposed to God in thought, word, and deed. As we say this morning, we'll say this morning, uh, by what we have done and by what we've left undone. In other words, pretty much entirely, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely entirely. Uh, at the same time, and that's, that's, that's Romans. You can read, start in maybe at five or just start at the beginning. It's not a long book. And read five, chapters five through eight and see where that gets you. So at the same time, um, so great, grace is actually saying that God, God is favorable to you. That's God's declaration that I do love you. You are my child. I, I, and I do take care of you in body and soul and spirit. So Luther's running against the definition here that it's a substance. And so people say, a person who believes that he can obtain grace, obtain God's favor, we would say, but Luther is actually talking about obtaining this thing that makes, it, makes you able to be a Christian, um, by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. So it's one ascend to say that you can obtain grace by your own doing. And then it's, what's, what's the double sin? How does that work out? Somebody figure out Luther's lo- logic here? Believe in the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not only that you're thinking that you can do the wrong, but you're actually looking in the wrong place for it. You're looking in yourself for the thing that only God, it's not even a thing, for the disposition that God has for you. We would say, you know, Maybe the best expression of God's grace for you in the divine service, actually the whole thing is, but I think maybe very poignant would be the ironic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. That's, that's, that's the gracious disposition. Face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. See how it goes together? And um, look upon you with favor, God's gracious favor, and give you his peace. Hmm. Okay, so you can't add to grace, first point. Second point, next thesis, which is number 17, it doesn't say that. Anybody like to read it loudly? Nor does speaking in this manner give cause for despair, but for arousing the desire to humble oneself and seek the grace of Christ. Okay, so now Luther is responding to the accusation that if we say that you can't add to grace, then that's just going to make people miserable. Because now what are they supposed to do? And they can't do anything, so now they're just going to panic. And we're going to have rioting, and there will be cats and dogs, and what the, how's the expression go? I'm thinking of a movie quote. <laughs> cats and dogs living together, you know, anarchy, <laughs> chaos, yeah. Oh, it's from Ghostbusters, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> can't get it right. It'll be there. Um, that's not what happens. Actually, what it's, what it's meant to do is to say you cannot, because you cannot, in thought, word, or deed, by what you do, why you can't do whatever, you can't earn God's favor, merit his grace, 
that isn't meant to lead you to dis well it does cause you to despair of yourself of your ability and your strength but it's meant to drive you in humility or he says humbly to look to Christ who is the author and perfecter of faith look to Christ for, for your what does he say for the grace of Christ the favor of Christ uh huh good so far okay next it is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ yeah so uh, I think we talked about this at length last week but um, Luther is running with a, uh, he's got a couple ideas that he's running in tandem that are paradoxes remember in the introduction he called them theological paradoxes so he's got law and gospel and that is a paradox and you're going to catch that today in today's sermon but also especially from the epistle today is from Galatians it's like how, why would God give the law if you can't keep it why did he do that why did he tell you, here's what you must do if you can't do it? Is that a paradox? Only if you don't know that, no, he completes the law, he fulfills the law, he does the doing, and by that virtue, he gives you what the law demands, which is righteousness, obedience, um, faithfulness to God. He does it, to, one, to show you that you can't do it, and two, then, to lead you away from yourself and back to put your eyes upon Christ for the doing of the law. Mm. But that's not, doesn't, I mean, the, that's a little revolutionary in, in Luther's day, but today it still uh, runs contrary to what we think, how think, we think things should work. It shouldn't work that way. It shouldn't be God, our God just saves us and he does all the doing and then we receive by, in faith, we believe it. What, well, then what do we do? And so we have come up with ways to add ways to that. And Jody knows there's all sorts of controversy about this topic, too. I can't see his facial expression. My eyes are no good. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a perennial, it's been a perennial argument, and it's bound up in the doctrine of election, and we don't have to talk about it right now. But, but it's a big deal. Um, what do we contribute to salvation and the, or justification, if you want to use the technical term? And the answer from the scriptures from the, and our, from our confessions is, Nothing. We contribute nothing but, well, actually, our sin. <laughs> you know, our death. Uh, we give that, and he takes that from us. So then what do we do? And that's, oh, kind of, Pastor, tell me what to do. And Lutheran's answer, general, or Luther's answer, and our answer generally is, be who you are. Serve God in your vocation. Be a faithful husband or wife, worker, citizen, child, student, teacher, um, mechanic, I don't know. Keep going down your vocation, list of vocations. I don't know. Mechanics of vocational tech, I suppose. Different definition there. All right, so again, we must, the whole point is law, despair of our own ability before he is prepared to receive, gift, gospel, the grace of Christ. So the purpose of the law is um, to show one their sin and actually cause you again to despair completely of your ability to come into God's favor. Now this, again, this is revolutionary. This is a big deal in Luther's day. Um, because everything, they have what we call the penitential system. The right of penance, you know. We talked about 
private confession. And like when a, especially when a Roman Catholic comes to confess, one who was raised uh, in the Roman church and they'll come to confess to me and then they'll say, you know, whatever, please forgive me. And then they spend a lot of time trying to tell me everything that they've done that's wrong, which is fine. Whatever's on your conscience, review, you know, confess that. And then I'll say, you know, in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, go in peace. And the answer is, is that it? And the answer, of course, I give is, yeah, that's it. Do you want there to be more? Your sins are forgiven. Well, but what about, I'm like, no, not, not what about. Well, what about making amends? You're free to make amends. You're forgiven. God does not holding it against you. If you, can, if you can repair or reconcile with your neighbor that you sinned against, do it. No problem. Not to earn God's favor, but simply because your neighbor needs that forgiveness too. They need you to confess. They need to forgive you. You need that. You know, those relationships um, are good and God-pleasing. Restore them. Is God happy with that? Of course. But he died for you despite the fact that you, whether you did that or not. Make sense? Yeah, so forgiveness of sins is unilateral. Um, it's just given, and it's not contingent upon your doing. But, so that's still lingering. That's just part of our whole understanding that we want God to kind of be a give-and-take transaction. We give, you give to us. If I do this, you'll do this, that kind of way of thinking. I had somebody once uh, in the last parish I served say, say to me, you know, my dad always taught me, he was a Lutheran, um, if I give more, God will give me more in return. referring to the offerings. And it was like my first year in ministry, and I'm like staggered. I'm like, um, that's not why you put offerings in the plate, so that you can be more wealthy. Um, there are people that teach that. <laughs> we usually call them wealth and, you know, health, wealth, prosperity. Prosperity gospel. Prosperity light is kind of attached to Mr. Osteen on TV, because um, he's a little bit, he's not quite as, as hard line on that, but he still teaches that. Yeah. No, uh, you take care of your neighbors. You show love to your, to your pastor, to your congregation. Is God pleased with that? Absolutely. Is, does it, is it in order that you would receive some like, supernatural benefit in return? No, because you already have. You've already had the full and complete forgiveness of your sins. You are God's child by your baptism. You have his body of blood bring, joining you to him. You have everything you need for body and life already now. So there's no, there's no need for a transaction. We just don't believe that. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, way back then, there were some pastors who, who like they said that they want, like, um, like this, this other church that really, really hurts me, the way they said they want a thousand dollars every man, woman, and child from the congregation, and that really hurts. That's not Christian. What do they think? It's all they're thinking about is the money, though. Mm. the real truth in there right. in the Bible because all they're thinking about is the money from the congregation and where do where is the money coming from and we don't have that much we don't yeah. not like big shots or something like no. that well and that's true every every individual in the congregation is going to have different means very grace as uh, St. Paul says it they've been blessed in varied ways by God some rich some poor some um, some old some young some working some not working I'm and that, that actually is not, and this is really what we're dealing with right now. This is not a, an indication of whether God loves you or not. The stuff. 
Um, but that, that whole, like, give $1,000 every member understands that God's, God's favor upon our congregation is dependent upon our sacrifice to God, not on his sacrifice to us and Jesus. Follow? Yeah. One thing is, is God wants our time, not our money. Well, he does, he does use your money, though, if you put it in the plate. And where is that how to use it? Uh-huh. As... And some churches use it better or worse. Right? Some are more transparent or less. Um, he does benefit from your time. Well, your neighbor does. Actually, God doesn't really need any of those things himself, but he gives them to you in order to benefit your neighbor, right? So whether it's your money or your time, uh, sometimes we add, what's the other one? T- treasures? Talents? And, oh, talents. That's the other one. Yeah, your abilities and your time. And those are all resources that God has given you that the church benefits from, the church that God instituted. So, yeah, use them, but not, not to, again, earn God's favor, but to benefit your neighbor, for the love of your neighbor. And you catch this, I give you, I know there are additions, but like the, the one that I say pretty regularly, like you confess the creed. Yes, does it benefit you to confess the creed? Absolutely, you're confessing your faith. But who needs to hear your faith? God knows your faith. He knows your heart. Who needs to hear you say it? Your neighbor does. Your neighbor does. When you say, I believe, and they hear you say, I, then you're like, and they're like, I believe. And now what have you done? Yeah, you built a relationship with them even by speaking together a common faith. Uh, today's insert, by the way, in the bulletin is about the creed, so there's more on that there. Okay. Uh, that's, that's what, 16 through 18, it says, right? Interestingly, it skips 19, and I think 19 is very helpful, so I'm just going to read it to you. He, meaning, well, just general he, he is not worthy to be called a theologian, somebody speaking about God, theologia, who looks at the hidden things of God as being understandable through the things that have happened in the world. So I mentioned there's paradoxes. We have law gospel. Luther is also running another paradox, which he calls the revealed God and the hidden God. Actually, we should do it the other way. The hidden God and the revealed God. I feel like we've talked about this. Does that sound familiar to you? God hidden is the one that you can't know. His, his judgments are unspeakable. His wisdom is unsearchable. Something like that, as the psalmist says, right? It's like, who has known the mind of God? The psalmist says. Right, so... So that's the, that's the God who like says, here, you're rich and you're poor. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, on what basis? I want to be like that, right? And Luther's, that's what Luther's saying in this article. He's saying that you can't understand the God, God who, whose judgments we don't understand through the things of this world. If you start looking at all the external things of life, you're going to discover only a God whose wisdom, whose, under, whose knowledge is beyond our we just don't understand. We can't know. Like, why, do, why was that person saved and that person not saved? Why did they have a hurricane and we get a heat wave? Well, that's not, I don't know. That's still a fair trade-off, I think. Um, you know, look, or why, why am I healthy and that person's sick? Or why am I sick and that person's healthy? You start looking at that stuff, what's it going to drive you to? Nuts. Nuts. Bonkers, yeah. Like, am I... How, does God love me at all? How do I even know, right? Because one day it seems like he's like, he's like, you're the best ever. You know, give you a, a medal or a pin or a, what do you call it, a ribbon? A ribbon? 
And then the next day, it's like that, just like that. What happened? What did I do? Right? Think of it like Jesus talking about uh, um, to the, the, the sick man, you know, was he paralyzed? Yeah. Um, and he asks, you know, or that they ask him, who, who sinned? Was it this man's sin or his parents' sin? You know, why, why is this man sick? And Jesus' response is very curious, so that the glory of God would be revealed in him. And then he tells the man to get up and walk, right? But this man was ill in order that God's glory be revealed at that moment, at that very point in time. So that's, the key, that's actually a key text because it shows us the only way we can understand what has happened, say, in that particular moment is if God himself reveals it to us and tells us. That's why that, in this case, that's why this man was sick. And so that this moment I could show you that I have not only authority uh, to make this man walk, but to forgive his sins. An authority that no, one, no, no other man has ever had. Well, only as they were instruments of God. Okay? So, so this is another paradox. We have the hidden God. Now, who's the revealed God? It's the same God, by the way. But, but we, we approach God in these two ways. The revealed God would be... How do we know who God is? Jesus. Yeah, well, yes. Jesus is the revealed God in the flesh, right? He's God made man. Flesh and blood. See, touch, feel. Sensory. Lives and dies and rises. Unlike other men have ever done apart from him, okay? Um, yeah, we can see God and live. And actually, um, Lutherans, actually most Christians, I would say, throughout time have understood that, well, that's not even true. A lot of Christians have understood, I don't even know if it's most, that when we meet God in the Old Testament, we're actually meeting Jesus. Born, before he's born of the Virgin Mary, according to time. But we're meeting the second person of the Trinity. So Moses sees the backside of God, <laughs> Because Jesus says nobody's seen the Father. Right? So you see the backside, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I always think that's a kind of a funny expression, but <laughs> he hides him in the crack and just see what's all. Oh, that's funny too. Um, <laughs> unintentionally. But it's not God's grace and favor that he sees in Christ Jesus crucified, really. Who does, who's the God that he sees, the God that you can't even look at him face to face yet? Um, but other times Jesus shows up and people see him face to face. Think Jacob wrestling. Huh? He calls, what does he call the place after he wrestles there? Anybody remember the name of the, what he calls the place? Penuel. Pen, no. Penuel, yeah, because I've striven with God and lived. And, yeah. I have seen God. Yeah, yeah. Um, or I think it's largely believed that uh, when Moses dines with the with the three angels? Is that the Trinity? But when, when Adam's walking with God in the garden? <laughs> the old Adam and the new Adam walking side by side? How's that? Pretty slick. But anyway, um, seeing God, in, that, that's the God that we re- revealed. God doesn't reveal why we're sick or healthy or why we're rich or poor or why we're, why we're male or female or black or white or whatever you know, earthly kind of definition you'd like to attribute yourself to being, however you self-identify, whatever pronouns you like to use, whatever it is, um, God identifies you uh, by that word, from the word of God. Who is Jesus? You know, you are my child through baptism. That's your identity. Or uh, what else has he revealed for you? 
I love you because... Why? You know this to be true. Why? Because I've told you. But, I, but not only that, I've forgiven you. I've done that in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. Which has been revealed. There are eyewitnesses of both his death and resurrection. So the apostolic church is the church that, that follows uh, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, those who were with him from the beginning, from his baptism in the river by John through to his ascension into heaven. All right. So the revealed God. And that's a God that, <laughs> that is your God. And that's the God that, that um, um, is full of grace and truth, of mercy. Jesus who comes healing, preaching, teaching, correcting as well, driving out money changers, you know, but reconciling all things unto himself. Not the God who terrifies you, who, the one who say, how can evil things happen to good people? Which incidentally is backwards. That came from a rabbi. What was his name? Rabbi, we'll call him, uh, I don't know, come up with a nice Jewish name. Nobody has one. What that? Hillel. Yeah. Yeah, Rabbi Hallelujah. That's right. Yeah. No, he said, uh, yeah. That how, he asked that question. It's sometimes called theodicy. How can God, what, you know, how can God, can good people experience evil? And our response, actually, I think is kind of helpful. Well, why do evil people experience God's grace and favor? <laughs> On what basis? Let's ask that question, because that's the question he's revealed the answer to. He hasn't revealed the answer to the other question. That's the hidden God, and that only is going to lead you to terror and despair and wonder. So that's going on too. There's law, gospel. He's got the hidden God versus the revealed God. And then he gets us to question 20, which is the response to that, all those articles. Somebody want to read that? He deserves to be called a theologian. However... Who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross? All right. Now you understand maybe why we did all of this. <laughs> because what did we read from Matthew 16? Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. He deserves to be called a theologian. That's not, by the way, a pastor. That means anybody who wants to speak of God, which means all of you. <laughs> I know, you don't want to think yourself as a theologian. Maybe you think of yourself as a theologian because you're a Bible class and those non-theologians go to, just go to church. No. If you have any ideas about God and you've, if, you want, if you express them with words, <laughs> then you are a theologian. But he deserves to be called a theologian who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God, the things of this life, through the suffering of Christ and the cross. How do I know God loves me? Because he suffered and died for me. How do I know that God is going to work this present suffering for my good? Because he did the same in Christ who suffered, died, but rose on the third day. And Jesus himself says, uh, he who desires to follow after me must take up his cross. That is to suffer himself and die to everything that he would maybe physically die um, but certainly die to everything that would keep him away from God, apart from God. Love of, of self or of this world. 
Hmm. Anything on that? Do the next one. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. Yeah. So this is, the theologian of glory is, is the person who actually um, finds a way around the problem of the hidden God and does it by speaking in the opposite. Does this make sense? Let's try to come up with an example. So you're suffering, and so a theologian of glory says, well, that's not suffering, that's blessing. You're being blessed with suffering. And you're like, no, it hurts. Right? Um, what would be the opposite? Would say, you have, uh, you have all this money, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to get to you, so you better give it to us. Right? Because, you know, it's going to make you greedy, and, you know, you've been blessed, and, but it's really evil. God would, you know, you should live... This is especially true in the medieval system. You should live a life of poverty, and that's a more godly virtue than living with all that wealth. Incidentally, all the wealth that you had before you became a monk or that was your family's, you gave it to the church, so the church is extremely wealthy. Even though they tell you that it's not good to be wealthy. Get your head around that. You see how that works out? So call what is good evil and what is evil good. Do you have an example? No, I'm, I'm just thinking... It's like any other organism, the church, or any other mm. business does whatever it can to make itself thrive, and it's not working. <laughs> Did you catch what, what was said? Yeah. There's, there's one guiding principle for every institution, man, especially man institution. I was saying, what's the one guiding principle? Profit. Ah, before profit. Survival. Survival. Absolutely right. Self-preservation. Whatever we do... Let's not dare do anything that might put our, our future in jeopardy. Right? So, but what does desperation do for people? <laughs> desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And then you do the, the Hail Mary just to try to... If we do this, we'll, it'll work. This, this might work. Let's just try it and, and just hope we can stay alive. And you really... Um, from my own experience, there's nowhere you see this more evident than in churches. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's too, too dramatic of a way to say it. But it is evident in congregations. You, congregations will not, under any circumstance, die, even if by all measure they really, really should. So even after they can no longer have a pastor, regular pastor, even they stop meeting. This, happened, this was in Indiana in my circuit. There were, there were two congregations that existed. They met once a month. They didn't have a pastor. They just read the Bible together. And yet, the, there, was, there was no mechanism to say to them, all right, you're done. Time to cash it in. You know, go to this church, go to that church. You've got churches down the road. You know, it, there's nothing wrong. Not, no offense. You, your church, it was blessed by God. It's still being blessed by God. You can be a blessing by using your assets to support others. Okay? <coughs> Can you breathe? All right, good. Um, yeah, and you just can't. Sometimes congregations, though, do need probably to consider <coughs> merging, dying and rising, really. Um, sometimes there's so much baggage. I tried to propose this in the last parish I served. There was, there was so much bad history that was like, can we just bury that? 
Like literally, just like say we're done. All that and everything that we need to do, anything we need to do in order for that to be dead, gone, dead, buried, over with, not, we're not going to hold it against ourselves anymore. How can we do that? I mean, even like, do we just close and like start over, have a new name and new history and just go back to ground level? I say that might be an idea. And the resistance to that, ooh-wee, you know? And it's not like you didn't lose your church. You're just saying we're gonna follow, we're just gonna use this mechanism to just like, just say all that was that was ancient history now, and and we're 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 starting over by God's grace and favor, and with the emphasis where it needs to be is that God has blessed us with this building with these people, and in order to give us what He desires. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know we have these grand ideas. Pastors are vision, visionary pastors are the worst, and uh, because we don't have any, we can't actually execute it. it. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Just, just you know, devastate the congregation, then gather them back around God's word, and then God's word will um, work out to. Oh, why don't we have a church? Well, let's form one again, and yeah, I'd like to believe that would work. I don't know, maybe it would, um, but to, the actual follow through. Not going to happen. You remember, like all these German immigrants—that's the Missouri Synod history. They come over to the to the states. They set up their farms all through, like north in, north north uh, east central west Indiana. You're over in the east side, west side. But on the east side, my relative Friedrich Vinniken, famous guy, the Vinniken House. You can go see it. Yellow pants man. He's what was called a circuit rider. He rode around to all these farms in in the north part of Indiana and also in Ohio and elsewhere. And all he, do, all he does is say, you guys, you moved over here, but where's your church? And they're like, oh, are there other Germans? And they're like, yeah, no. Are there other Lutherans? Yeah, there's other Lutherans. And then he starts these little congregations and just say, why don't you and you and you, why don't you get together and meet and hear God's word, call a pastor, da, 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 da. We're, we're wrapping it up. I don't want to take this over to next week, so let's just read the next three that wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. Whew. Now Luther is just like, he doesn't like, maybe is kind of puffed up. <laughs> no, he's completely, he's puffed up, blinded, and hardened. If you think that, again, prosperity gospel, if I'm wealthy, then that means God loves me. That's actually, that's in the hidden knowledge of God. That's not part of the revealed knowledge. So we can't look at that. That's actually looking for God in the wrong place. The the law brings the wrath of God, kills, reviles, accuses, judges, condemns everything that is not in Christ. Romans 4. So we talked about that in relation to the law of God and the purpose of the law. Yet, that wisdom, the law, is not of itself evil. Even though the law brings death, reviles, accuses, judges, and condemns, it doesn't mean the law is evil. Luther is very careful about that. Nor is the law to be evaded. Well, because we don't like it, we should just kind of put that in its corner, right? Um, But without the theology of the cross, so without the suffering and dying Jesus, without the law even, uh, man misuses the best in the worst manner. 
So this is kind of an upside down way of looking things, isn't it? But you notice that this, um, you know, this is kind of a governing principle. We would say here Luther is outlining, he's using two terms. He doesn't really use these later on, but they're, they're intertwined with hidden God, revealed God, and also law and gospel. Here's theology of the cross and theology of glory. So theology of cross says that, um, calls a thing what it is. If you're suffering, you're suffering. It is suffering. It's not less than suffering. It's still suffering. If you're grieving the loss of a loved one, it's not like, oh, no, that's actually a blessing to you. No, it's grief. It is grief. Calls it what it is. <clears throat> if you're dying, it's not, well, you're going to go to a better place. No, you are dying. The flesh is being put to death. It's, it actually is what it is. Right? Now, what does Jesus say about those who die in him? And arise, right? So God is, is going to use this for your blessing. He works all things for the good of those who love him, right? But he doesn't change them from being what they aren't to what they, but he uses them for your blessing. Uh, so he, I, maybe, maybe some of this little, it's a little sophistry. You're working with like saying the right words so that you don't confuse people. But you probably know this. Somebody's grieving. You can go up to him and say, it'll get better. Or maybe you do say that to him. Will it get better? Hey, you've had you've had people die that you know, right? Does it get better? Coming back, you'll see them later, maybe, but that it really just it really just changes. Yeah, you still grieve, but maybe you don't feel it quite the same way bodily or emotionally. Somebody have something to say there? If you're a Scott, you'll say, "Get away from me and leave me in my own misery." With my whatever I'm doing, whatever, 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 whatever. Well, and whatever heavy drink you've got too. I don't want to be consoled. Give me, give me my, my, my. It does kind of bring you comfort, as long as you keep drinking, you don't stop. Yeah. So, and then you see, I gave you two quotes. One uh, is from Luther's works, volume 31, where he, he teaches the same thing again. He uses these expressions again uh, a couple years later. Uh, but then I also gave you from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession at the bottom, uh, the way that the Apology speaks in this ter- these terms. Also, again, um, almost, see, the Apology would have been 1526, maybe. I think it was the year after Augsburg, so... Um, so uh, almost eight years later, Melanchthon writes, Troubles are not always punishments or signs of wrath. Indeed, terrified consciences should be taught that there are more important purposes for afflictions, so that they do not think God is rejecting them when they see nothing but God's punishment and anger and troubles. The other more important purposes are to be considered, that is, that God is doing his strange work so that he may be able to do his own work. And that's another expression that's a, um, a paradox. But we call it God's strange work. I like to call it his alien work because you think little green men. Um, That's how I remember it. His alien work versus his proper work. Or here, Melanchthon called in English, it's the strange work versus his own work. So the hidden God, those those are the works that, the things that God does that we can't understand. They're strange to us. But his proper work or his own work is the work that he wants you to look at. And that's what he's doing with his disciples in Matthew. Every time he does his passion prediction, it's like, you're going to experience all sorts of things, but where are you to keep your eyes and your hearts and your minds? On me, namely, 
not just the one who taught on the mountain or the one who brought great healings and, and great miracles, but yeah, the one who suffered and died and rose for your justification, for your sanctification, for everything, um, for body and life that is needed for you. Yeah. Keep your eyes there. And everything else, if you don't know, pray. And if there is no word of God to that, don't presume to know. Because that will drive you to despair and wonder and hopelessness. If you only look to the experiences of your, of your life as proof or lack of proof that God loves you. Got it? So this is still pretty early Luther, but it's quite a bit different than 1517. And then when you keep going into 15, like 19, freedom of the Christian, or like he goes a whole nother level from here, really. He's still moving, trying to get trying to get as much scripture, what does the Bible teach, and put away as much philosophical mumbo jumbo that was accumulated there in the medieval church. I was gonna say it seems like people use theology of the cross pretty loosely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's where it comes from. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think it is used maybe a little bit too broadly, as like this paradigm that guides everything that Luther ever says, or that we should, or how we should think. If that makes sense. So, like, things are going miserable in the church. Well, that's the theology of the cross. Well, yeah, it is. Um, but they may be going miserable because you're stupid. You know, you made a bad choice or something. I mean, so it's not an excuse to keep doing stupid things or something like that. To bring about suffering because that's how God blesses you. That makes sense, right? So, don't be stupid. Sorry. <laughs> he gives you wisdom. Right? So, that's an example, maybe, where it's just used to say, to justify all manner of, like... Like, well, I guess when you put it in comparison to theology of glory, that makes more sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it really, again, it has to do with law gospel. Uh, hidden God revealed God. Um, God whose works we cannot understand are unsearchable. And God whose works are known to us, revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So if you want proof that God loves you, remember your baptism. Look to the cross. Hear that word of forgiveness and say, that's for me. Right? Because that's where God has promised to reveal those things to you. Uh, actually reveal to you how he truly feels about you. Which is that he loves you. Hmm. The disciples have a problem with this in Matthew. And it'll keep going. We'll, we'll dig into that next week. By the way, next week, new schedule, old schedule, original schedule? Normal schedule? I don't know. Whatever you want to call it. So 8 o'clock church, 9.30 Bible class down the hall. Is it 9.30? Yeah, 9.30. Uh, try to be done by 10.15 at the latest. And then, um, and then church at 10, at what time? 11. Oh, 11. Eh, maybe, maybe 10.30 at the latest. Uh, uh, but, but yeah, and then church at 11. And uh, so you, got, you have those choices. And 6 p.m., of course, which has continued. Uh, by the way, Wednesday starts not next Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. So the 12th. I don't know why that is, but that's what I'm told. So regular service starts next week, but Wednesday service doesn't start for two weeks. 4.30 used to be 4.30. 4.30 used to be 4.30? It's still 4.30. I don't know. I don't understand. 
Yeah. But 4.30, uh, 4.30 on Wednesday is a spoken service, uh, no hymnody, and uh, no song liturgy. So, uh, abbreviated that way. I haven't got a question. Yeah, Adam. Uh, if you go to the elders' barbecue after the service today, make sure you keep the door shut in there because the air conditioning is on. Oh, great. And uh, since this is our last coffee hour uh, in this format, I wanted to recognize and thank the board family and Grace Moore for putting these on every single yes. Sunday of the summer. So, thank you. You're off duty. <laughs> Theology of the cross right there. Look at that. All right, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us uh, in the suffering and death resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We look to the cross and we know that you truly do love us, that you have forgiven us, um, and that you will bring us uh, to you on the last day. We ask that you keep us in this faith all our days. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. Amen.